need a conversion of the heart. We need that kind of spiritual and emotional change in individuals and then writ large in our culture. Without that, we could continue to change policies here and there, but the underlying problem is the hatred itself. It's easy to talk about the successes, but what doesn't get talked about enough is the struggle. My name is Eric Weinmayer. I've gotten the chance to ascend Mount Everest, to climb the tallest mountain in every continent, to kayak the Grand Canyon, and I happen to be blind. It's been a struggle to live what I call a no barriers life, to define it, to push the parameters of what it means. And part of the equation is diving into the learning process and trying to illuminate the universal elements that exist along the way. And that unexplored terrain between those dark places we find ourselves in and the summit exists a map. That map, that way forward, is what we call no barriers. Cyrus Habib was elected Washington State's 16th Lieutenant Governor in November of 2016 at the age of 35. As Lieutenant Governor, he's the President of the State Senate, serves as acting governor whenever Governor Inslee leaves the state, and oversees an agency whose key issues include economic development, trade, and higher education. A three-time cancer survivor, Lieutenant Governor Habib has been fully blind since the age of eight. His parents immigrated to the U.S. from Iran before he was born and is the first and only Iranian-American to hold statewide elected office in the United States. This guy is amazingly fascinated. You're going to enjoy this one. Well, great. Um, Welcome to the No Barriers podcast. Thanks to Wells Fargo and Prudential, our supporters of this podcast. And uh, today we have maybe our best guest yet. Uh, Lieutenant Governor uh, Cyrus Habib. Call me Cyrus because there's nothing more clunky than the title Lieutenant Governor. Uh, so let's. It is let's, a mouthful. It is, yeah, it is. It's fascinating. So there's a lot of us who don't understand the, I guess, the dynamics of this level of politics that you are in right now. So as a Lieutenant Governor, so you're the current presiding Lieutenant Governor of the state of Washington. Can you? Maybe just give us a sense of, of where that falls in the political schematic and then and then what responsibilities do you have? Yeah. So it's you know, it's equivalent to vice president at the federal level. Every state uh, has a governor and every almost every state has a lieutenant governor. There are three states that actually do not. So it, as lieutenant governor, I'm number two in the executive branch. Uh, which means that I fill in for the governor. I serve as governor every time the governor leaves the state or uh, were he to be unable to perform his duties. And I would become the governor automatically were he to leave his position for some reason. Another part of my role is to serve as president of the Senate. And then finally, I run my own small agency, which uh, focuses on higher education and international relations issues. Hmm. And, and Cyrus, you've had this meteoric rise. I mean, I don't mean to like embarrass you, but it's pretty amazing. Rhodes Scholar and Columbia and Yale and, and you were the Democratic whip of the state Senate, Senate, I believe. I mean, so being blind, let me start with the obvious. Like, 
what kind of pioneering stuff have you had to adapt in the world of politics as a blind person? And hold on a second, hold on a second. So you just kind of brushed over the being blind part. So everybody that's listening is like, oh, Lieutenant Governor Washington, Lieutenant. It's almost like Eric's title, you know, I climbed Everest. And oh, by the way, I'm blind. So, yeah. you know, Cyrus is like, oh, I'm Lieutenant Governor. Oh, and by the way, I'm blind. So, so yeah, everybody also. Yeah, and he's blind. And he's blind. <laughs> like okay. me. Okay, go ahead. Blind Sorry. brothers here. And yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> so what kind of doubts yeah. were there? I mean, there had to be like a lot of doubts. And you've even told me in person, you know, that obviously some some doubt from the world, like, how are you going to do this? And, you know, all the procedural stuff in terms of the Senate and so forth. There's a couple of ways to answer it. One is, um, you know, what were some of the kind of silly doubts that were out there, the prejudices and things like that. And then the other one is actually, what were some of the logistical challenges? Right. You know, Eric, as you know, um, you know, if you're going to climb Everest, it's not enough to say like, well, stop being so ableist, you know, uh, I can do it, you know, just like everyone else. No, you actually have to, to make accommodations. You have to, to, to adapt. And so I think that's one of the things that makes, uh, I guess, ableism is the, is the term that we use now. And, you know, kind of anti-blind prejudice. It, it, you know, one of the things that makes that, that kind of anti-disability prejudice so challenging is that unlike you know, racial or gender or other forms of bigotry, it's not totally rooted in in fiction, right? It's not completely a construct, you know? So there are things that are obviously harder for me to do because I'm blind, you know? So unlike being Iranian-American, where if someone has thoughts about my abilities, it's just rooted in, um, in ignorance, there are actual legitimate things that need to be adapted. So, So let me first talk about the the kind of um, the frustrating. And by the way, so, Cyrus, I know exactly what you're saying. Like I've, I, like I'm totally connecting because when I was in college, I tried to get a job as a dishwasher. I thought, okay, that's a job I can handle. Nobody would give me a job. Everyone had a different reason. And but the point being that I didn't know whether I could do it either because nobody would give me a chance to either prove it otherwise or or right. prove them wrong. Like so, I still to this day don't know whether I could have succeeded in that job so i hear what you're saying into your your house and your apartment and you can't (laughs) yeah i i i'm i think uh with this sample size of two i think it's fair to say that uh we don't make great dishwashers i i'm willing to sign on to that um yeah it's 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 an interesting thing and because i think it it's one of the hard things about being a person with a disability in society is that there's this kind of double play that you have to that you have to execute where on one level you have to demonstrate your strength and your capabilities so that people won't second guess you on the other hand you actually have to feel like there's a safe space to communicate what you need in order to do the things that you know in, in order to to participate fully and equally and uh compete or even exceed uh what other people are doing so that it's just it's just a really tough it's a tough uh, uh, thread uh, needle to thread. You know, I went to two Ivy League universities. I studied at Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar, which was built a thousand years before the British version of the ADA. Uh, so uh, I've, I've lived in Guatemala for a couple of months, studying Spanish on my own, traveled all over the world, taken the New York subway. I said, you know, believe it or not, 
running for state house of representatives is not even close to the hardest thing I've ever done. You climbed Kilimanjaro last year. It was a, your brainstorm and it was partly, well, you can tell us the whole story, your motivation to do it, but there's a really cool motivation behind it. And as a result of climbing Kilimanjaro, you raise a lot of money and, and a lot of attention for a very cool program called Boundless Washington. We wanted to create some kind of a leadership program for kids with disabilities in our state. We, we, I'd found kind of this passion uh, of mine was to create youth leadership programs. And, and I really, really wanted to do one for kids with disabilities because I identified a problem we have, which is that we don't have kind of a bench of people who are ready to go and be champions for our communities of people with disabilities. Um, in the way that you find among other underrepresented groups, we really don't have that. And there's a bunch of reasons for that. And so that was on my mind. And so it just kind of came together. What if I do something? What if I do a climb? What if I push myself and I use that to kind of be the launching pad for this program, which would also be about the outdoors, which is important for us in Washington state and, and get, you know, kind of create an opportunity for young people to get leadership through the outdoors. Kilimanjaro had always, always kind of held this place in my in my imagination. I also knew that Kilimanjaro was a climb that you could do um, without technical training. And so that's how it came together. I'm going to climb Kilimanjaro. We're going to use the money to raise money and awareness for an outdoor leadership program for kids with disabilities. And then we said, okay, well, we don't know anything about providing outdoor leadership programs for kids with disabilities. So we better find people who do. And so we started with No Barriers because that's already something that you all do. So Outdoors for All and No Barriers are providing the, the curricula that we're, that we're using. So, um, and Jeff may not even know this, but PV, Jeff, yep. I don't think he knows this, PV wound up leading Cyrus leading and his up Kilimanjaro. So um, Cyrus got to hang out with the infamous Pasquale. I got the real crew. experience. And he was oh. the guy who led uh, our Everest expedition way back in 2001. Yeah, so we made the decision and we reached out and No, no Barriers was game and Outdoors for All was game. And so we started to, to say, okay, let, now let's, let's get ready for the hike. And Eric came out to do a, a, a hike and to do Climb Baker and then was generous enough to spend an extra day training me on his techniques and methods of using trekking poles and other gear and, you know, hiking as a blind person which was really invaluable. And then we went and, 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 and I did it. And Pasquale was, uh, you know, you couldn't ask for a better person to accompany someone who's blind. The morning of the summit was the most brutal four or five hours I've ever experienced. So it started out, you know, you're climbing in the middle of the night, it's cold, it's the last stretch. It started out that every five minutes I needed to stop and just catch my breath. Then it was every minute. Then it was every 10 steps. And if I sat down, I would start coughing insanely, like to the point that I thought my ribs would, would crack. So I was like, I can't sit down, but I would just be doubled over panting. And I was like, you know, honest to God, I was like, am I going to be able to do this? I don't want to let down the kids that I'm asking to push themselves. I want to have credibility with them. And I don't want to let down other people out there who may think of doing this themselves. But I did 
I did carry on and I, I'd said to Pasquale before, like a couple days earlier, I said, look, no matter what, I need to make it to the top of this mountain. Okay, no matter what, I just need to make it to the top. Good job, yeah. congratulations. Well, thank you, thank yeah. you. But, uh, yeah, but it just goes to show that how expectations, you know, we do, I think, um, and this isn't just people with disabilities, you know, I mean, I know I keep coming back. I mean, I work in politics, so I keep coming back to, uh, to these examples, but, you know, I'm confident that Obama lived every day in the White House thinking, I've got to, I, I can't, I can't screw this up, both because I'm president, but also because I've got the weight of this historical first on my shoulders. And I also know because she's written about it that, you know, Hillary Clinton felt a lot of feelings uh, of that, of that nature as well and sense of real, um, in her, in her concession speech, even really wanting to tell young girls, don't be discouraged by this and so on. And, and I kind of, I kind of knew what she must've been going through because I was, that's what I was afraid of when I worried that I wouldn't make it to the top of Kilimanjaro. Well, I'll tell you, Cyrus, and I, Eric will speak directly to this, but you know, Eric and I've been doing these adventures and climbing together for, yeah. for a long time. And, and I've, I've watched the process of him, almost shouldering that burden and i'm going to call it a burden to a certain degree because so much of what you said i've heard eric say in private and in some cases public too that if he didn't succeed it would be because of blindness um and he he knew that there were a lot of other variables that that blindness had had no influence on that were going to contribute to the final result of whether we stood on top of Everest or not, and and I think that that added pressure is a, a heavy burden for some people to carry. But then on the other hand, I'm going to say that I've seen Eric channel that into fuel, and I think huge champions do that. They're able to sort of change their own internal optic of what that feels like and looks like. And Eric is a stubborn son of a bitch, man. He, uh, I mean, he does, he will not be beaten. Um, and I've seen that. It sounds like you, you got that same gene sequence as well. Just, you know, just saying like, you know, Hey, I've, I've accepted it. It's on my shoulders and it is what it is. And I'm going to channel it and, uh, and use it as a motivator. So Eric, I'm sure you've got something to say on that. Well, no, I'm just back to Cyrus and great things came out of it. You know, there's, um, how many kids are in the boundless, the first program? We got nine kids in this first cohort. Um, with all different physical and sensory disabilities. They're just amazing. They're, they're wonderful, wonderful uh, young leaders. They already have an interest and a passion in being advocates. And uh, when they were asked, you know, at the, in the kind of the, um, you know, in that uh, intro day where you spoke, Eric, they were, you know, later on, they were kind of asked, what do you want to get out of this? And overwhelmingly, the answers were like, how to be an advocate for myself. You know, I mean, and, and, and not that they're not interested in kayaking and rafting and hiking and cycling and those things, because they are, but it was, was really impressive to me that they were all, you know, that's kind of what they hope to get out of it. But Jeff, you know, just to, just to say, to, to circle back to what you were just saying, you know, it is, yeah, it's definitely, it, it's definitely a motivation. I think one of the reasons it's a motivation is I think the most powerful reason is because it gives you something other than yourself to care about in that moment. Because if it's just if it's just pure vanity, 
that'll get you to a certain point. But I do believe, and I have to believe that the, the most kind of crackling, sparkling form of, 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 uh, of fuel and motivation comes when you feel like there's, you're doing something for someone else. I mean, think about the, the crazy lengths that, you know, a mother will go to to get her child to safety, you know, in a refugee situation or, or whatever it might be, right? The, 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 the lengths to which we will push one, you know, we'll push ourselves to rescue someone else. And, and so this was a little flavor of that. It's not, not to be dramatic, but it was a little flavor of that of saying, you know, this is a chance to motivate and inspire other people. And so it's going to kind of keep me going. And it's, it's, you know, it's important to have, you know, people around to, to, to keep you from doing something, you know, truly dangerous that, that you shouldn't do that's irresponsible. But no, it was... Uh, I've found it many times because my friends, I didn't want to let them down. I didn't want to let people down. Yeah, that little bit of drive can be the difference. Kyle Maynard, who climbed Kilimanjaro, you may know he has uh, missing arms and legs. And the only thing that got him to the top, he said, was uh, carrying the ashes of this veteran who had committed suicide he had the guy's ashes and a pouch in his around his neck and he's like that's the only thing that got me to the summit was knowing that i had to sprinkle this guy's ashes up there so yeah that that fuel can be it can be a good thing yeah yeah you you had you had to get married uh yeah although 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 you you weren't although there was a lot of a lot of time to the summit after uh honeymoon after the (laughs) village yeah our summit day uh, hour was our honeymoon. Your honeymoon left you breathless. Ellie's, Ellie's favorite, famous quote was, this is absolute miser- misery. No, no, no. She said, I said, Ellie, this is our honeymoon. And she said, uh, no, this is an endless nightmare. Endless nightmare. Said, that's what it was. I said, uh, good. That's, uh, that's, there's more of that to come. <laughs> so I know you've been asked this a ton, but you're a three-time cancer survivor. And you also, I think you went blind to eight years old. Yeah. And so... You know, I get to turn the tides and ask you about, you know, that process of going blind. Um, And, you know, does that change you? Does that like make you more of who you might be? I was old enough that I still had this, you know, that I still to this day have this kind of archive of visual memories. You know, my joke is that, you know, because I was born in 81 and I, became blind in 89. All eight years I could see took place in the 1980s. So all my visual memories are still from the 80s. So everyone still looks like Cindy Lauper and Boy George. But (laughs) I remember what gremlins looked like. So right. And 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 I remember Smurfs and you know, so it's fun. That's why Eric still wears dad jeans. Smurfs, but not the Simpsons. Right. But I have that visual archive, but I was young enough that like when other kids were learning cursive, I was learning Braille. So you're still kind of in that mode where you're learning new things. Also, I was an only child, so I didn't have a sibling at home to kind of compare myself to. Not that I didn't know it was different and and unfortunate, but my parents really did a phenomenal job of shielding me from the trauma of it. Um, you know, I have memories, of course, I have unpleasant memories of going to the hospital and being hooked up to an IV and getting chemo and surgeries and, 
you know, all those kinds of things um, that are very unpleasant memories from my childhood. But but they are they're really quite few relative to when I when I you asked me what was your childhood like. It's it's really a bunch of positive, pleasant memories. And so I was just really, really lucky in that sense. I tell a story. It's um, shortly after I became blind, I was in third grade and every third graders favorite part of the school day is recess. And I was no different, but the school wasn't thrilled with the idea of me playing on the playground equipment during recess time up on the slides and swing, swing set and monkey bars, jungle gym, all the rest of it. So while the other kids were playing, they kept me by uh, on the, on the sidelines with the recess monitors, which, you know, as I often say, uh, I have, there's no offense to recess monitors but that's not who you want to hang out with when you're in third grade. So I went home, I told my parents that I'd been excluded and how I felt and they were as indignant as I was. And in fact, more so. And so my mom went to the school the next day and she took me with her to the principal's office. And it was important that she took me with her so that I could learn early on how to be an advocate for myself. And she said to the principal of the school, I'm going to take my son to your school over the weekend and I'm going to teach him how to get around. And, you know, he's going to learn his way around just as well as any other kid differently, but just as well. And she said, you know, it may happen that he may slip and fall and he might even slip and fall and break his arm. But that's a, that's a fear that, that any mother faces, but she said, I can fix a broken arm, but I can never fix a broken spirit. And I share that story because you know, long before I knew about, you know, Eric Wayne Weinmayer, wow, I almost screwed up your name, Eric Weinmayer. Uh, long before I knew about you, long before I'd met PV, you know, there was my mom, you know, and really both of my parents. Um, but my mom as the advocate, the lawyer, see, I think part of the reason they were afraid to let me up on the jungle gym was not just because they knew I was blind, but because they knew my mother was a litigator. <laughs> right. But it was it was that, you know, her teaching me that and teaching me to take risks and that it was okay for me to take risks. In fact, it was important for me not to be overly coddled and then also how to advocate for myself. Um, and so when I look back on being blind, how has it changed me? In a way, it's only been recently that I've realized it taught me, I knew this, that it taught me the importance of uh, conveying strength, of obtaining power. And that was what I was taught. And that is really a critical, the most critical part of how I got to win statewide elected office and all the rest of it. At the same time, what I've come to understand in recent years is that you can take that too far. And there is a way in which, whether it's the mountain, whether it's cancer, whether it's the death of a loved one, you know, like I, you know, yesterday was Father's Day, so I was missing my father, whom I lost to cancer three years ago. There are challenges and obstacles that you cannot litigate your way through or muscle your way through. Uh, or power your way through, you you might and you will overcome those obstacles. But in doing so, you actually, in order to do so, I actually think you need to confront your own weakness and vulnerability. 
And that was something that I was so eager to suppress because I was so eager to, you know, to show strength. And I'll, and I'll give you, you know, an an example, like when, when, when we all met up at, after you guys did Baker, you know, I had to be willing in that moment in front of total strangers to, you know, to, to say, I don't, you know, how do I do this? Or I don't know how, you know, and, and, and I just, you know, I, I developed such an exoskeleton around myself of capability that it took a lot even for me to allow myself to be mentored by other people. And so that's, I think all of those are things that, that blindness has taught me wisdom that it's given me about the world, because you don't have to be blind or even have a disability that you identify with in order to, to experience that kind of waxing and waning that I'm describing from, you know, feeling like strength and power are the answer and being in control and so on to then also recognizing there are moments when you have to face your own helplessness. Well, I find what you're saying super fascinating because like I can relate to that, you know, like, you know, you you get up on this pedestal, right? Uh, Maybe it's slightly different from what you're saying, but people are like, oh, this guy, he's climbed mountains. He's great. He's great. You always hear that. And then you get home and my wife's like, hey, you missed that birthday or whatever. And you're like, I learned that I don't take criticism well. And it's sort of like, I'm not used to it. And because everyone's holding you up, you know? And so is that sort of partly why you decided, I think it's public, right? That you're not going to run for office again, that you're going to become a Jesuit priest. Is that part of that? Like, hey, maybe I need to take a different course in life and, you know, maybe be a little more vulnerable, a little more contemplative or. Yeah, it's part of it. And it is in the sense that I first, you know, there's, there's an amazing, um, he died recently. There was an amazing uh, Jesuit priest, theologian, and uh, former Dean of the Jesuit school of theology of Berkeley named Michael Buckley, who um, wrote a quite well-known essay uh, I can't remember, I'm paraphrasing the name, but it was something like, you know, are you weak enough to be a priest? And, you know, the idea is that in order to be able to accompany people, you know, you need to, you know, in their brokenness and in their, in their difficulties, their challenges, you, you need to be able, you need to have confronted your own, your own weakness. Why? Because, this is after all a vocation that is wrapped up with a worldview that says that we are contingent creatures that we are you know cre- we are created we are creatures and that we live in relationship with a creator and if we as great of a politician lawyer mountaineer whatever it might be as great as we are if we mistake ourselves for the creator or if we if we forget that we are contingent creatures we're setting ourselves up for tragedy and deep heartache and also we are not then equipped to accompany others when they need to confront that realization and look i understand that there are, i'm sure there are many listeners who don't share my faith or may not uh, you know subscribe to any particular faith and so what i would say is Let's just even view it in a, in a secular way, which is to say Everest is Everest, Kilimanjaro is Kilimanjaro, Rainier is Rainier. You know, there is a smallness that you feel vis-a-vis nature. 
there's a smallness that you that 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 perhaps only in physical terms only a mountain can bring home to you but maybe an ocean as well right and so there are you know you don't have to uh to share my faith to believe in this but it's just to say that um yeah i came to realize through the com- a confluence of uh difficult circumstances that i in fact need whether it's that i'm on the mountain and i need pasquale and cristina and um you know uh eric's voice ringing in my head whether you know whether it's that whether it's i need you know the prayers and intercessions of saints praying for me in that moment god's help in that moment whatever your set of beliefs uh might be which of those you would subscribe to i do believe that all of them all of those were present in lifting me to the summit of kilimanjaro and i think that the same is true for the passing of my father the same is true for the medical challenges that i've faced more recently in life um and when i'm honest with myself the same is also true for being a person with a disability that much as i want to project that it doesn't pose obstacles to me anymore of course it does and of course there is weakness and sadness in that it doesn't mean dwell in that and be a victim or view yourself in that way or be disempowered not at all but it also doesn't mean aligning or ignoring the the sometimes harsh and sometimes sad realities of of a complicated life in a complicated world but i do really strongly feel that this is what i'm meant to do the the challenge our country faces right now is upstream from politics politics are the downstream the politics we have are the downstream consequence of a spiritual and cultural and social dysfunction that exists right now a real lack of compassion a deficit of understanding and a growth of tribalism then has mapped onto political identities and so even just laying aside the personal kind of desire i have to serve in this way i also think that for the kinds of public service that i got into politics to do in order for that to work i've now realized we actually need people of goodwill to work upstream from all that you know is to guide guide the society hopefully in a direction that is conducive to increase social justice economic and racial justice environmental stewardship um and taking care of one another you've realized that you can create more positive impact in the world through this new mission of yours as it stacks up against being a lieutenant governor and perhaps even the governor of a state and and maybe even higher office and is that a good assessment what we need either at the individualized level or at the cultural level is um the greek word is metanoia uh we need a conversion of the heart we need that kind of spiritual and emotional change in individuals and then writ large in our culture and so i have determined that that is uh more important without that we will we can continue to change policies here and there but the underlying problem that really really is what we hate what we really hate is 
the racism, the hatred itself. You know, that's what we can't stand. And so to get to the heart of the matter, I think we, we need people to serve in this, uh, in this way and in this fashion. And I think that embedded in your, in your question, I think is kind of this, uh, and you asked it quite neutrally. So I don't, maybe you weren't insinuating this, but I think that many people kind of insinuate, isn't it better to do things at scale? You know, and we have an, we kind of have an obsession in our society. It's, it's, it's wrapped up with how our economy works, that everything has to be scalable and has to grow and has to be bigger. Um, and the bigger uh, the thing, the bigger the impact, the, bit, the better the good is. And I, I guess I would just question that. Um, there's definitely a time for scale, but, you know, George Floyd was not a famous person. He was not a person who any of us would have ever expected to change the course of history. And yet through his death, through a seemingly insignificant, unknown person dying somewhere, uh, you know, without, without, you know, from a police officer who nobody knew either, you know, that one act will have changed history. And, you know, in my faith, the ultimate example of that is, you know, a poor uh, traveling rabbi who died and was executed kind of, in, you know, in, in a pretty, you know, not not earth shattering way uh, by the logic of the Romans or of the Jews in that time. But, you know, he asked his friends to break bread in remembrance of him. And as we record this podcast around the world, millions of people at this very instance that I'm uttering this sentence are doing that very thing that he he asked 2000 years ago. So either one could be a person of faith and say that's because it's the Holy Spirit or you don't have to even believe to say, look at what one kind of small figure, not a not a king, not not a you know, not um, an emperor, not a high priest, but one person. 2000 years later in every corner of the earth, uh, people are obeying that. What an amazing testament to how what we consider small and what we consider big are often limited by our own very, very narrow conceptions of those things. Well, Cyrus, that's like a really coherent, but I, you know, I'm glad I, I heard you say all that because it's, it's a, like this really cool counterintuitive course that you're taking. But when you lay it out in that way, it makes perfect sense, you know, instead of being an external leader, kind of shifting more with what society is looking for at that moment, you're getting to the source of these things, the source, you know, which is the heart, which is the spirit. And uh, that's right. That's really, really cool. And I bet really illuminating for people to know that they have that power to, to shift in their lives in a pretty dramatic way. Well, thank you, Cyrus, so much. And uh, really, it's like such a privilege. Thank you for your friendship and your mentorship to me and to, to countless others. All right. Well, thank you. Jeff, what did you take away from that? Well, you know, clearly Cyrus is probably one of the m more interesting people that I think any of us have been introduced to in, in recent memory. I mean, this guy's uh, he's, he's just got uh, such an amazing story. Every single step of the way has been amazing. And he's, he's clearly shown courage and resiliency through it all. And I would say, 
maybe not even right to say it, but I feel like the most courageous thing that he's doing is is what he's about to embark on now. It seems like the culmination of everything he's done. You know, he's got such a a successful career, what people would consider a you know a really a really amazing uh, position right now, and something he could really build on. And in a way, he is, but he's doing it in an unconventional way. The courage and the bravery that it takes for him to sort of step back and and listen to his spirit and his soul and uh, what's calling him. Clearly, there had to have been a, a place where he felt a little disenchanted or maybe even disenfranchised from from the political scheme and platform that he that he has right now. But you know, I applaud him for for finding a way to to be able to redirect and uh, still create amazing impact uh, for you know generations to come. So uh, what an what an amazing guy! What about you, Eric? Yeah, I totally agree. Cyrus was on this track, and when you get on a track, and I imagine the desperation of going blind, and you know, the fear that you're not going to be able to achieve all your dreams, and then you persevere, right? You're a Rhodes Scholar, and you go to an Ivy League school, get a law degree, and actually get elected into office, and you're on this incredible trajectory, possibly to become the first blind governor of Washington State, and you turn inward. And this is what we preach at No Barriers all the time, this idea of vision, right? You turn inward and you say, hey, this course does not feel right for me. You know, I'm tapping into what purpose means to me, and it's, it's not right. And I think I can have a bigger impact closer to the source, right? Really getting and changing people's hearts and their spiritual lives. And I think that's going to have a bigger impact on the world. But that is a very counterintuitive decision. And I think that's a good thing to point out in this No Barriers journey is that you don't just get on a track and just keep rolling forward and get a lot of recognition and acclaim and say, okay, this is my destiny. No, you know, you can, you can change course at any time. You can say, hey, you know what, I'm going to shift. But that really does take, you know, not just being in touch with the external rewards of and recognition, but really tapping into that vision. So good job, Cyrus. You really are an amazing representative of having vision. Pardon the pun, I guess. Thanks again, everybody. Thank you to Wells Fargo and Prudential for all the community listening out there. If you guys like No Barriers and support our mission, we'll support the companies that support us. Thank you, guys. No Barriers. production team behind this podcast includes senior producer Pauline Schaefer, executive producer Diedrich Jonk, sound design, editing, and mixing by Tyler Kotman, graphics by Sam Davis, and marketing support by Megan Lee and Carly Sandsmark. Special thanks to the Dan Ryan Band for our intro song, Guidance. And thanks to all of you for listening. We know that you've got a lot of choices about how you can spend your time, and we appreciate you spending it with us. If you enjoy this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to it, share it, and give us a review. Show notes can be found at NoBarriersPodcast.com. And soon they will be fine.